to another episode of Rockstar Violinist, the podcast from Electric Violin Shop that brings you the most interesting string players in the world. Dr. David Wallace is a violinist, a violist, a composer, and a professor, which all sounds very academic. But he's not only fluent in classical music, he does have a doctorate degree from Juilliard, which isn't nothing. He's also a Texas-style contest fiddler, a church musician, an R&B player, is legit, he played with Stevie Wonder, a metalhead, I was actually fortunate enough to play in a Motley Crue tribute with him, and an experimental composer and improviser. We're listening to his piece entitled Nahum right now. I'm gonna let him talk about that in a minute. Oh, and if all that wasn't enough, He's also the chair of the string department at Berklee College of Music in Boston. He's responsible for teaching the artist your kids are gonna grow up listening to. I simply cannot say enough about how important Doc Wallace is, not only to today's music scene, but also to tomorrow's. So let's get on with our chat with David Wallace, rock star violist. So we're sitting at the Mark Wood Rock Orchestra Camp. It's my second year here, and uh, I got a chance to hang out with you a little bit last year, but not nearly enough. And this interview has been like more than a year in the making. So, um, yeah, I guess maybe just sort of tell people a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you are now. Sure. Well, actually, my first instrument was piano. I mean, I, I grew up in the 70s, and there was this incredible ragtime revival and you couldn't escape ragtime Scott Joplin's music was everywhere and it it drove me crazy I I needed to play it Um, I had a babysitter who my sister had this little air organ of about you know an octave and a half and it had some black keys that would actually do the chords Mm -hmm. and um, this babysitter played the opening of the entertainer I'm like stop play that again Slow it down, play it again, write down the numbers, you know, so that she would write down, because I wanted to, to play that, you know, and, um, you know, I lobbied hard for piano lessons, and my, my family found a teacher, and um, that was my main instrument until I was about 16, you know, which was great, because I had a teacher who was really insistent that we learn theory and learn how to, build, how to build chords and chord inversions and those things. And uh, I mean, the other beautiful thing was piano, you can play independently. I mean, one of the problems that we've got to resolve as string educators is that um, string instruments are not always taught in a way that they can be satisfactorily um, studied independently. You know, because we've got an orchestral model, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not enough in itself. My sister started violin in the sixth grade orchestra, and I was, you know, finishing fourth grade. And so, not long after she started lessons, I also started violin when I was about 10. And, you know, the trajectory that was really kind of 
awesome was I grew up as a bilingual musician in that uh, during the school year I took violin lessons and I played in the school orchestra and during the summer we spent a lot of time at my grandparents who lived in Crockett, Texas which was home to the World Championship Fiddlers Festival and so I learned to play Texas style fiddle during the summers and compete in contests and I mean that's the style that Mark O'Connor really grew up playing and that you know introduced him to the violin and that also is what taught me arranging. It built my left hand technique because a lot of the harder tunes you're using a fourth finger drone and a lot of the waltz tunes you're doing double stops of mostly thirds with shifts. And you can't do thirds and fourth finger drones with lousy left hand position. You know, it just basically sets you up very well. And the other thing that was helpful was my dad was my guitarist. You always play with uh, one or two guitarists who's playing these kind of, uh, it's called sock style rhythm guitar that was based on Eldon Chamblin, who was the guitarist with Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. And then, you know, you pluck a bass note and then you hit the backbeat really hard. And so I could play with my dad all the time. And in the fiddle tunes, sound great independently you know you don't even need the guitar for it to be satisfying and so that kept me practicing in that gap between like Suzuki book three and the the box sonatas and partitas so you know honestly I don't think I would be a professional musician if I didn't have that opportunity uh, to to have the Texas fiddle tradition and then, uh, I mean, I, in school I was on very much a math and science and engineering kind of track, but by about my senior year of high school I kind of burned out on that, and I really came to, to appreciate how much I loved music. You know, I, I remember telling my parents when I decided to major in music in college, it's, I said, this is something that I've always loved and that I think could interest and challenge me for the rest of my life. And I, I didn't look back. And um, when I went to college, I set this fiddling aside because, you know, I was a relatively late starter and late, didn't start practicing as early as a lot of my peers. And so I felt I really needed to catch up, build that classical technique. Um, but I was also still very interested in exploring new things. I did a lot of new music, a lot of composer collaborations. And... When I got to New York City, I did a whole lot of um, avant-garde classical music. And then at a certain point, um, you know, there, there was a turning point where I was working on my doctorate at Juilliard, and I had to give a lecture recital on something. That's part of the degree requirements. And... I thought this is either the biggest mistake I'm making or the best move possible, but I decided I'm going to do this on Texas-style fiddling. Oh, yeah. You know, and this was 97, so that was... The timing was actually good because that was just when Yo-Yo Ma's first album with Mark O'Connor and Edgar Meyer was number one on the classical charts, so timing was great because Yo-Yo's playing Texas fiddle, well, then it must be okay. Right. And uh, so I brought my dad up. It's funny because my dad always used to joke, when are we going to play at Lincoln Center? It's like, okay, dad, start practicing. (laughs) (laughs) You're playing. And it's funny. I rehearsed him mercilessly and, you know, kind of gave him a hard time. But but he played great. And 
that was my best attended recital at Juilliard because <laughs> it's like, no, at that time, I mean, now things have opened up quite a bit and it's not so unusual to have someone do something more outside the box, even at, you know, a conservative conservatory. But back then for someone to do a doctoral lecture recital on Texas Fiddle, but it, it went over very well. And uh, the head of the doctoral committee was there, and she said, you have to write your thesis on this. It's like, okay, no problem, because, <laughs> you know, I, I knew, okay, I wouldn't mind digging into this a lot deeper, and I also would rather work on something where I'm more of an expert than the people who are reviewing me and grilling me on it, because if I were to write on Brahms or something like that, there's people who know far more than I probably ever would on that committee. But in any case, that was a real turning point because, in uh, actually, even before that, I should share this story where, like, after my first year at Juilliard, where I did a postgraduate certificate for a year, I really burned out. You know, I, Juilliard's a wonderful, wonderful place, but it will bust your chops and, and break your ego, which for me was a good thing. You know, I think when I came through the other side, um, you know, I was a lot more humble and also had a, a really serious work ethic. But I remember there was a friend of mine, Sam Marchand, who's a violist and a great music teacher. He had been through the system of orchestras, El Sistema in Venezuela. And I remember we were sitting in orchestra once and he looks at me, he's like, Dave, man, where you from? You're the king. You're the king, man. Where I'm from, I'm the king. But Juilliard, everyone's a king, man. <laughs> it's like that. there was some truth to that. I mean, it was a, a powerhouse time for, for violists, you know. I mean, I, I didn't even actually start viola till I was 21. And that was, you know, I was starting to wonder, can I really have a career as a musician just because I saw how hard it was and how competitive it was. And I thought... Um, if I could play viola, that would probably set me up to, to play more and work more. And I was shocked at a number of things. One was how much I enjoyed it, because in, when, when you're playing viola in a string quartet or an ensemble, you are making everybody else sound better. You know, something about the overtones and the way you're supporting them. You get to take over the bass role every now and then and you're really driving the rhythm and you get to partner with everybody and it was a much more collaborative kind of role and you didn't have quite as much of the high wire act that you do on first violin right. and um, it also felt like it suited my voice and I've got long arms and long fingers and the high positions on the violin still always feel a little bit like I'm wearing shoes that are too tight for me. Mm -hmm. And so having that extra length and just uh, felt like I'd grown into something and that I'd, I really found my voice and so that became really important to me. Um, there were a few other things that happened along the way that really opened up some new doors. One was I got to know Mark O'Connor a bit because I, I, you know, waited outside the kind of the green room where he had played a solo recital at Rockefeller University in New York. And I introduced myself, you know, he had been talking to people for about an hour, long, long reception line. I just waited till the end and just briefly said, hi, I'm David Wallace. You know, I've had your record since I was a kid. 
and I'm writing a thesis on Texas style fiddling. He said, okay, you know, here's my email, email me. And so we corresponded and had some phone calls and um, he asked me to teach at his camp starting in 2002. And that was a life-changing experience because for one thing, it opened up so many doors and introduced me to so many wonderful musicians and so many amazing collaborations. And uh, that was when I first started to play electric because I, I honestly I had no intention of playing electric uh, just because when I was learning and developing the, the role models were not necessarily something that I was interested in because a lot of it was classical crossover it's like okay let's plug in and do something that feels fun and just basically slightly rocked up or jazzed up classical pieces and I wasn't particularly interested in that um, but Mark Wood was teaching at this camp and, and that's the other thing is I, I'm not I mean there's so many different ways to amplify and there's many different tastes I've never really been a pickup guy like I tend to like the extremes of the spectrum I either want to sound like a beautifully mic'd acoustic where you can't even tell that you're hearing something that's electric or I want to sound like Hendrix. I want to go all in, you know, in the deep end. And you know, I've as I've gotten older, I've moderated a little bit, and I can under. And pickups have gotten a lot better sure. too. So you know, um, these days I, I am playing with pickups more. But just that first opportunity to plug into a Viper and um, experience those kinds of sounds and to you know, use the wah pedal and, and all that. There's a friend of mine who is actually a childhood fiddle contest rival who was at that camp, and she took a series of photographs of me trying the Viper. And it's funny, because it's like, you see me just sort of processing and thinking and, you know, like, taking it in. And then there's this one picture with my tongue out farther than I've ever seen, where I look like Gene Simmons, you know, <laughs> just doing a backbend and playing this instrument. And it's like, and I, I knew I had to get one. This is an excerpt from his composition, Elegy of a Dream. This is a live performance that was the world premiere at the Mark Wood Rock Orchestra Camp in 2018. Here was another reason, was there, there's this piece that, you know, it's kind of my greatest electric hit right now, which um, the, 
the kids here even did a fan shirt based on it, but it's, you know, Nahum, uh, an apocalyptic prophecy, which is based on an Old Testament prophecy of Dune, basically. It's the sequel to the book of Jonah, and it was a piece that, one of the things that fascinated me was a lot of the imagery and words in that are very sonic. You know, a lot of prophets and prophecies are very imagistic, and you have these images, but this had a lot of sound. And I'm like, somebody needs to turn this into a piece of music. And so I was thinking about, well, you know, maybe I could make this uh, a vocal piece for a singer and orchestra. And I thought, you know, at that time, I didn't think I'd ever have the opportunity to write for orchestra. And I'm like, when, you know, who's going to do that? Who's going to pay me? I don't have the money to hire an orchestra. And uh, then I thought, well, maybe I'll do a singing solo violist and I'll wear some ankle bells. And that didn't go too well. <laughs> and then once I played Mark's instruments, like, okay, this is possible. You know, I can do this. And um, I ordered one custom, I think mine was the first viola-sized viper that they built, because I I didn't, I already had enough um, systems of intonation to worry about playing violin and playing viola, and I, I said, I love my viola, I'm not planning on buying another one, measure it, spec it, and I also had the suspicion that the extra length would help with the lower strings and I believe that it does and you know I don't think it's just my own psychology I think it's just physics you know having the extra length for the F and C string helps it quite a bit and Joe did a Joe Domjan the main luthier did just a great thing so it feels pretty much like I'm playing my viola but it just has a couple more strings and the you know, the bridge is, of course, a little bit different, but I, I don't feel like I have to practice another technique for it. But that opened up a tremendous number of doors. And then I guess one other thing that was really important was in 1997, I had moved to Brooklyn. That was back before Brooklyn was full of hipsters, you know, and it was, I, I left Brooklyn when it became more expensive than Manhattan, you know, but back when I moved there, it was still... Uh, you know, it was still a little bit more crime, a little bit, um, a little bit more affordable. You know, it's like I we I was splitting a whole floor of a brownstone for twelve hundred a month. You know, so my rent was six hundred plus utilities. That's yeah, unheard of. It's on, yeah. You know, it's like that same floor through. I mean, that was the other thing. Like then you could buy the, you could buy a brownstone in Brooklyn for five hundred thousand. Nowadays, that won't even get you one bedroom. Right. You know, it's, it's it's kind of insane what's happened with real estate. But I happen to move to the same block as Leroy Jenkins, who um, is kind of the father of free jazz violin and free jazz viola. And that was kind of a life-changing event where he stopped me on the street one day. He's like, hey, you, are you that violinist who lives on Prospect Place? And it's like, you know, I have my instrument with me. He said... I, he said, come on over sometime, I'll show you some tunes. And I was on my way to school, and you know how, I mean, in a big city, people stop you all the time, and some of them are creeps, some of them are, right. some of them are, are frauds, but, you know, I, I thought, well, let's, let's do a little research on this guy. And at school, they had some of his recordings in the listening library. 
and he was in the New Grove Dictionary of American Music, and it's like, wow, this guy's the real deal. And so I, I called him up and I said, hey, can I, can I study with you? And he said, well, I, you know, he kind of hemmed and hawed and said he didn't really take students, which was not entirely true. He he taught Billy Bang and a num- number of other folks, and Martha Mook actually collaborated with him and commissioned some music mm-hmm. from him. But but he said, well, come on over, you know, we'll. We'll jam and and so I went over there and he, we, he said okay take out your fiddle and we just played for about ten minutes and this kind of free improvisation just swirled and swirled and swirled and then all of a sudden he just burst out laughing like hey, hey yeah you do know how to improvise and then he kind of glared at me and said you're not some fraud like Yanni and oh. it was like whoa <laughs> but I'm thinking. That's probably one I should leave out of my press kit, but I'd kind of yeah. like, like to include it. But, but you know, he, he, he said, okay, you know, and, and he started showing me some of his pieces. And the thing that really opened up the world to me, he was part of this whole downtown new music scene in New York where a lot of times uh, it would be such that the compositions would be partly composed but partly improvised. So, like, there would be a head or a section that you would play pretty much as written, and then you would improvise freely based on that material. And uh, that opened up the door to composition for me because a lot of times I'd get stuck or I would be um, kind of disappointed and crestfallen because the stuff I would write down or write, I always thought, this is nowhere near as good as the stuff I can just make up. And why should I try to compose if I can just do something that's better or harder or more inventive just flying by the seat of my pants and um, he really showed me that there was a middle ground where you can use both and I really appreciated that and that got me on a different path to really start composing a lot more I mean around that time also I had a conversation with Mark O'Connor that was kind of mind-blowing because we were talking about music and pieces, and and he said, I actually have a lot more trust in my compositions than I do my improvisations. I'm like, really? Because, I mean, his his improvisations are pretty mind-blowing. He's thinking good. You know, and... uh, and and I said really because I was surprised because I was ex- expressing that I was the opposite you know and I and he and I'm just thinking this guy improvises far more fluently than I do <laughs> at least you know certainly at that time and he said um, he said well I feel like as soon as I'm ready to sign off on a composition I feel like I've gotten it as good as I possibly can and that it's in its final form and that was a good lesson for me too because then it's sort of made me realize okay in composing and revising I want to get something to the point where I feel it's at the apex it's done it's good and uh, I think I'm now more to the point where he is where if I've actually written something and finished it I feel like okay this is as good as that's going to get and I can't improvise something as good as that in that particular vein right you know so that's kind of the short story of the journey and all the different influences and corners that I've turned awesome Here is Doc's flute, viola, and harp trio called Hat Trick. This is a bit of a tune called Submerged. It was commissioned from a Uruguayan American composer named Miguel de Aguila. 
It's inspired by Andean folk music, and Doc is strumming his viola like a churango, knocking on it and making some bird sounds. And you'll enjoy it. So now you're, you're composing and you're performing and you're teaching in a variety of places. Um, let, let's talk about one of your compositions and uh, sort of get into the, the story behind it. Sure. Um, I'll talk about, probably, I, this is kind of my second major composition for the, the six-string electric violin. This was a piece that was commissioned by two longtime friends of Mark Wood's camp, Bob and Gene Ryan. And they have a foundation, and they started a wonderful grant for the faculty at this uh, camp. And one was to develop technology, and the other was to compose some new music. And I, I had realized I had actually had a dry spell where I hadn't written an electric composition uh, since 2006, really. And, I, and part of it is just having the need to do it or having people ask you to do it and having the opportunity. It does take time. And part of it was I was kind of scared because that previous piece of mine was so popular and the kids had made a T-shirt about it and everything. And it's like, well, geez, whatever I do has got to be good and it's got to be different. Um, and I was looking for different subjects. I was really looking for let, let's make some portraits of some 20th century individuals who have either complica complicated or important legacies. And so kind of the, I was sketching out a lot of different things for different people. And the one that kind of took over was uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, you know, the, basically the inventor of the atomic bomb and the director of the Manhattan Project as well as someone who had to deal with the aftermath of all that, you know, and uh, um, that was kind of, I did a tremendous amount of research, a tremendous amount of improvising, and basically you're kind of going through the whole process of um, the setting the beauty of the desert and the piece is you know the whole title is a ray of irrevocable light and it's really investigating different kinds of light philosophical light the light of science um, the metaphysical light the light of um, nuclear explosions just all these different things as well as on a larger sense it's about Faustian bargains you know and how once you've struck a deal, once you've done something, once you've discovered something, you can't go back. Right. You know, we can't unlearn what we, 
what we know. As we say, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Exactly. You know, and so in a piece, it's, it's really, a, it's really takes you through that journey of you first, you're just out there in Los Alamos in this beautiful desert. And I mean, the Southwest is really important to me. I've spent so much time there and done so much hiking and the light has a certain color to it and there's a certain ambience and there's so much openness and peace. And, um, you know, that's basically how the piece starts. And there's a lot of thematic transformation where there's these ideas and these harmonies that change. Like the, the piece is centered around the pitch F. Uh, sometimes it's more in a Lydian mode. Sometimes it's more some other mode or something. But F is the centerpiece. But it, like your experience of F in this piece changes over the course of the eight or nine minutes of it unfolding. And... Um, you know what? What really got me going was I was I had just gotten a Boss DD five hundred, which is just an amazing delay pedal. Where mm -hmm. it's so many delays in ones, and the thing that I love about it uh, is that you can program it and put in exactly how many milliseconds you want, and you can do super long delays. That's my quibble with many delay pedals is you can't do long delays. And if I want to do cannons or stuff like that, I need an extraordinarily long delay. And so the whole piece kind of has this pulse of um, 54 beats per minute. And that pulse will go through different meters. So sometimes it'll feel like things are much faster or sometimes it'll be a triple meter or something like mm. that as opposed to a duple but you have this constant echo. And the thing that is amazing about bowed strings is our bow is infinite sustain. And so with this long delay, it's basically, I, I didn't plan this, but it's 1,111 milliseconds. So it's 1111. Um, but I, the thing that's amazing is when you have a delay with a bow, all it does is it makes the pitch thick and wide and yep. beautiful. And if in this, I'm stacking seven so that I'm getting these really tall harmonies. And so there's enough feedback that you get some residual pitches. And so you're able to do these stacks of chords. But if I'm doing short bow strokes or I'm doing pizzicatos, then in effect, I get a short loop that cycles about four times and then it's done. And so that was kind of the, the premise. I mean, sometimes... Sometimes it's fun to put as many petals as you can and see how many different effects you can make and how many different colors. But other times it's fun just to take one petal and see how you can get as much as possible from as little as possible. And so that was really kind of my working premise is how much can I discover with this one delay setting, this one petal. And uh, that's kind of how it all developed. A lot of it was improvised before I wrote it down. There's this one section that was missing. It was this, there's this kind of um, critical moment where it's basically representing, okay, this is the moment of the Trinity test. And, the, you know, that happens and the world's forever changed. And I needed to somehow figure out I've got all this music and I've got all this music that comes after it and I don't know how to get from one to the other and I just decided okay well let's run it into Pro Tools and I'm going to run the whole piece and I'm just going to improvise the transition 
and I ran the whole piece, and I really liked what I played, so I just took dictation and said, okay, that's it. You know, that was, that was how I, I solved that problem. You, know? you gave a songwriting or a composing lecture here yesterday, and one of the things that you sort of talked about in that is that a lot of these pieces, you sort of get them started, and then they just write themselves. Yes. I mean, I'm a big believer in listening to your music and letting it do what it wants to do. Uh, and for me, improvisation's a lot of the process in doing things at the instrument and working things out by ear and in my head before I start notating. If I start notating immediately, usually the piece is not going to end up that good, you know, just because I... I don't know, if you're improvising, you're working in real time and you can explore a lot more options a lot faster because input takes so long. And actually, I like writing things out by hand before I go into the computer. But yeah, I think, I think a little bit of compositions as being like children. You know, They've got a life of their own. They've got a personality of their own. They have a will of their own. And they want to be something. And you can maybe guide them and nurture them and, and steer them a little bit. But fundamentally, they're going to become what they want to become. And if you try to force your own ego on it and make it who you are, what you want to do, it's not going to be as good, you know, so. You can almost tell the songs that that's happened to. You know, when you when you yeah. hear one, you can hear that, wow, you, you tried to send that somewhere it didn't want to go. Yeah, and, and I, mean, that's, I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, we, I was, I was really glad to have you join the orchestra the other night when we played Motley Crue's Home Sweet Home that I did a new string arrangement for. And I mean, the thing is, that is a crazy song in that I sat down and analyzed it and it does not fit any sort of formula about this is how you write a ballad or this is how you write a song. And these asymmetries, these unpredictabilities, they're what keep the song sounding fresh. And that was a song that was basically... Uh, as I understand it, it was written in the studio in slightly over an hour, where they basically had their material together, they wrote some lyrics, they jammed, and they had it, you know, and that's, whereas there were plenty, I mean, that was the song that in some ways ruined metal, because everybody, <laughs> everybody decided, okay, we gotta have yeah, a power gotta, ballad now, power and that was part of the funny, was their record label didn't want that on the record, and then once it was on the record, they didn't want it to be a single, but the band believed in it, and they also saw what an impact it had on the fans live, and, uh, you know, but it's funny, because a lot of the power ballads that came afterwards with Poison or Whitesnake or every single band, that's their producer's like, okay, right. you gotta have What's Your yeah, Home every Sweet album, Home. Album had you one, know, yeah. and, and some of them, some of them were fine, but, you know, if you look, okay, look at Every Rose Has Its Thorn. It's a, it's a fine song, there's nothing wrong with it, but it totally fits the mold. There's nothing unpredictable Formal about it. You know, it's it's totally formulaic. I mean, what's what's amazing about Home Sweet Home is it's got a 16-bar guitar solo, but you don't even realize the guitar solo has started for the, for the first eight bars because it start, it's underscoring the chorus. You know, and that was another thing about Mick Mars was he always, he always had the opinion, which I believe is incredibly right, serve the song. You know, if you're playing, it's great if you shred, but the song, unless it's just so an instrumental it's, or something, or it's specifically to highlight shredding, it's about what are the words saying and what are they doing, right. you know? And so 
those first eight bars of his solo, he's developing some hooks, some stuff is going, and then when the eight bars hits where it's the solo proper, the shredding begins, you know, and it's an incredibly well-paced solo. But yeah, you, you can kind of tell the compositions or the songs where it happened organically and, and people basically say, this was a gift. It, you know, it's almost like I didn't even write it. It just emerged, you know. This is a live recording of the world premiere performance of Array of Irrevocable Light from the MW Rock Festival in 2016. For the most part, the only effect he's using, aside from reverb, is the delay set at 1,111 milliseconds with a lot of feedback. There's no looping and no recording here. Now, you might hear some overdrive and an octave snuck in there too. He said that if I want to scare the hell out of people and leave them nauseated, his words, not mine, to try starting at this point right here. Eh, you guys aren't scared. I'm not scared. Let's do it. But believe me, it's totally worth listening to the entire thing. You can find it on his YouTube channel. We'll get to that. Well, it's funny to, to hear, I mean, you're on faculty at, at Berkeley College mm -hmm. of Music, and it's funny to hear, for me, at least I grew up 
listening Suzuki, you know, and I was mm-hmm. study I studied at Michigan State University when I was a little kid. One of the string professors there had taken me as a private student in the afternoon. And then when I went home, I would listen to rock and roll. And I played trumpet and was playing in funk bands and rock bands and stuff. And so this like this dichotomy of two worlds that never the twain shall meet. Yeah. But to hear a, a music professor, generally you hear people like either history stopped a hundred years ago for them in their music or history started 60 years ago for them yeah. in their music. And it, it's great for, to me to hear you talk about, oh yeah, that sounds Brahmsian or that sounds, yeah, well, that's a little bit Beethoven or you know what What else? That's Pink Floyd. And to yeah. hear that music is this continuum that yes. has happened, yeah. at least for string players, our history is, is 400 years long and, and present continuous, right? I think so, and I, and that's the thing is I feel like we should be able to to claim the entire history of music and participate in things, you know. And that's something I was always trying to do is find what's what's my path in. I mean, it's like I remember when I was in sixth grade orchestra, you know, it's everybody everybody noodles with their instruments, you know, except for the really 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 good kids, you know. But those of us who can't sit still. And, you know, when I was in sixth grade, we were all figuring out how to play the main riffs from Crazy Train. Right. You know, plucking them on. And, I mean, we were actually transposing it without trying. But, you know, we were, everybody was playing and the director would have to glare at us and say, stop playing Crazy Train. But, I mean, at the same time, I, I had incredible public school orchestra programs. And I had no idea how good they were until uh, I left Texas in a way. Because I, I had no idea how strong the music education system was and how much strings were valued and I think part of that there were a couple of things one was the area I grew up in outside of Houston had been settled by a large number of German immigrants and they valued their musical heritage and were proud of it and the other thing is fiddle was so central to western swing and you know just the pioneer lifestyle because it's much easier to you know throw a fiddle in your wagon than it is to bring a piano or an accordion or something else you know um but it was it was a real uh it was a real part of everything i mean another thing that was part of my journey was when i was in new york i I spent about 17 years as a church musician at this church near Times Square where I did everything from like kind of jazz to grunge to hip-hop to reggae to everything. That was kind of a real schooling and musical style as well as in improvisation and on-the-spot arranging. And it was funny because when I first started playing... I was not the best by ear player. I'm still not as good as I want to be, but you know, at the time, it was actually simpler for me to say, okay, they want to do this hymn in that key, I'll read it in mezzo-soprano clef and harmonize it from there than it was to just say, oh, okay, this key, these chords, boom, you know, one, four, five, whatever. Um, and that was, you know, that was something. I mean, the other thing that was really kind of instrumental was... Um, I had a band start around that time in, ni- in 1999, the Doc Wallace Trio, where I play violin, and I've got an electric guitarist, an acoustic guitarist, and we do a lot of the, the Texas-style music. We actually, I'm finally finishing up production on our next record. I just got the artwork last week, and so mm-hmm. that hopefully will be out soon. Um, 
but what we, I mean, that's basically the Texas-style repertoire that I grew up playing, but letting the guitar solo a little bit more, and the electric guitarist has a tremendous background in jazz and R&B and went to Berkeley back in the 80s, and the acoustic guitarist is actually, he considers his main instrument bass, and he's really heavy with his lines, but we got an, uh, a regular gig playing at a, a cafe in Brooklyn, the living room, which closed, and I, I think there's really two great ways to become a good improvising string player, and they're both good, and they both offer different things, but one is to get yourself a regular gig in a club and be playing regularly, whether that's once a week or every night or five nights a week. And the other is be a church musician. You know, there's tremendous opportunities right now to, to play with a praise band, to play more contemporary music, and they're not writing string parts. You know, right. you got to come you up with your own. own. And the fun thing is, especially if you've got a multi-string instrument or if you're on a viola, you can take over the guitar role. You can you can play octaves above the voice. You can do fills. You can do solos. It's it's way more versatile, I think, than so many instruments. You can do more with it than guitar because you've got better sustain, you know. And you can do something different than you can with a keyboard because you have more sensitivity to articulation. And um, I think it's a good time to be a string player. And there's a lot that you can explore. But I think that was one of the things that always kind of characterized my journey was I always had a strong creative bent. And, you know, if I had any complaints or wishes about my training in the public schools was I wish there had been more of an outlet for creativity within my orchestra environment. Because we were, it was great. There was nothing wrong with it. And I understand when you're an orchestra director, just getting 50 or more kids to play in tune at the same time yeah. and learn this repertoire so you can put on a great concert so that the, the principal and the parents are satisfied. That's a lot, you know, but I kind of wish... I kind of wish there were more opportunity for, for creativity. And now there's more repertoire. You've got a lot of great folks uh, who are writing pieces that open up the door to all these other styles. Bob Phillips has those great, like Fiddler's Philharmonic or Jazz Philharmonic, Mariachi Philharmonic, those Alfred Music publications. Julie Lieberman's been doing a lot of original music from the beginning, you know, uh, Mark Wood, of course, has been doing a tremendous amount of both originals as well as rock arrangements with his Electrifier strings. And I did my first piece for, um, for like junior high strings just this spring. My old orchestra contacted me because the, the director of it was the, the daughter of my violin teacher in high school. Mm. And I, I remember when she was basically a baby you know but she had contacted me and said we're, we're playing at this music for all festival in Indianapolis and we'd love you to write a piece to be solo with the orchestra and that was kind of a thrill because it was also it was one of those things I had a mental block about because it's like okay whatever I write it's got to be okay with the seventh grade David Wallace sitting in the second violins and the 47-year-old David Wallace playing the solo part, you know, or the music. And so my idea was I wanted to write a cool piece that they could do without me, 
you know, and so it's 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 a piece for optional viola soloist, you know, it, it, that was kind of the thing. And I wrote the orchestra part first, and I was initially just thinking, well, I might just improvise the solo part anew every time, which was something Mark O'Connor did with his ninth violin concerto. But ultimately, I figured there was enough counterpoint and other stuff that it would be a better piece if I dialed in what I was going to play. But, you know, it's basically kind of a funky modal fiddle tune that bookends a 12-bar blues jam, mm -hmm. you know? And so the blues jam is totally improvised. I taught the kids how to play 12-bar blues, and when they played it in a spring concert without me, all the kids were taking solos. That's and, awesome. And the thing I was happiest about was, like, actually, I guess it was about last week, I got a packet of thank you notes from the students, and the thing that I was really thrilled about was all the kids were, the word that came up so much was fun. And, you know, the awesome was there a lot, too. But just the fact that, okay, I wrote a piece that today's middle school kids find fun. Thank you. That's all I, right. I wanted. You know, I was also just thinking about middle schools do a lot of school recruitment trips. You know, they could hit the elementary schools and try to, you know, my sister and I call it trick kids into playing the string yeah. instruments. And back in the day when they would do those tours, there were two pieces that they would play. One was Cotton Eye Joe which was pretty popular because the movie Urban Cowboy was pretty popular. Mm -hmm. You were hearing a lot of Cotton Eye Joe on the radio. And there was uh, Leroy Anderson's Plink, Plank, Plunk, which was you know, so much pizzicato and glissandos and squeaking the back of the instrument. You know, and They didn't tell you that you were going to have to do much more basic stuff right. and to do scales and to also learn some music that you might not be as keen on. But... You know, part of my thought was, well, let's write a piece specifically for this school, for this orchestra, that they could potentially go and hit the elementary schools and make someone else want to play a stringed instrument. You know, and I was looking, this was kind of a pay-it-forward opportunity. I think sure. all of us who arrive as professionals owe it to the people who helped us and the systems that helped us to... Um, to go back and to give back. I mean, it was funny. This was the first time I'd been back to my high school and junior high orchestras since maybe, I don't know, the sometime in the 90s. Just I, I didn't have an occasion to go back, and it's a long way from Boston or from New York. And uh, I was thinking, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go and help and do this great thing. And I'm like, holy cow, these kids are better than my orchestra was they don't need my help this is a privilege for me you know but it was I, I did some coachings and we did some rehearsal and then we went to Indianapolis and played it and we were in the the big theater there where the Indianapolis Symphony plays and uh, so the kids from Texas came up yeah awesome. so it was like a national orchestra festival and uh, it was a non-competitive festival so they that you got feedback and you got a clinic and I think all schools probably got a trophy or something but it, it wasn't a situation where okay one orchestra is going to be the sweepstakes and, and all those other things it was kind of a nice thing and there were uh, there were some of my friends there as well who had been uh, contacted to be composers and residents and they were specifically writing chamber music and orchestral pieces for for students you know and, and they had everything from middle school all the way through college students at that festival, and that it was really nice to see 
those opportunities for, and every orchestra was playing pieces by living composers and collaborating, and that was so good to see. I don't know if that was a requirement or whether they were just forward-looking orchestra directors. I mean, that was the other thing I was really fortunate about was my orchestra teachers were very open-minded, and they were pretty much of the opinion as, as long as the kids are practicing, it's a good thing. Yeah, for sure. And so we don't care... If you're going to go play in a fiddle contest and learn this fiddle music, we don't care if you're going to play in a punk band. We don't care if you're going to do the school musical or just whatever. They just... Just play. Just play. Just do music. Just be involved and, you know, be developing. And um, that was really great to see. And so they were very open with letting us explore, you know, as long. This is a recording of the world premiere of Mustang Mania that we just talked about. You'll hear Doc here performing with 7th and 8th graders with the Hildebrandt Intermediate Chamber Orchestra from the Klein Independent School District. All right, he sent me this note about this tune, so I'll just read it to you. Quote, So the idea of the piece is that it's a big ABA form with a Mixolydian fiddle tune on the outside, itself a bit of an ABA and a 12-bar blues vamp in the middle for improvised solos. I wanted to write something the kids could enjoy without me, so that when they play it by themselves, they were the ones taking the solos. One of my lessons with them was on how to improvise 12-bar blues. During the fiddle tune section, my solo part does a lot of doubling or reinforcing the groove by adding non-melodic licks that make things better. I've joked that it's the world's first concerto for string orchestra and optional solo violist. While there's no literal theft, you'll recognize a few illusions. There's a wink to the Beatles back to the USS, uh, back in the USSR parody, until it morphs into a reference to Box Brandenburg's Concerto Number no. Three, and the whole episode ends with a climactic, good old-fashioned Suzuki-style Mississippi stop-stop. Back in the '80s, when the other middle school kids and I weren't noodling the crazy train riff, we'd be plucking the bass part to bang your head. You hear that too. Oh, and I guess Paul Hindesmith should get some credit too because I'm, Doc here speaking, I'm inspired by how his camera music number five has the viola soloist doing a bunch of nonstop energetic rhythmic jamming, end quote. Thank you. 
what is the uh, what's the next step for you? What's what's coming? I mean, we've always got something ahead, right? Yeah, I think. Well, there's a number of things. One is I've got a book coming out from Berkeley Press soon called Engaging the Concert Audience, uh, A Musician's Guide to Interactive Performance. And it's kind of a reboot of an earlier book I had from McGraw-Hill called Reaching Out, A Musician's Guide to Interactive Performance. Basically, um, I have kind of a problem as a creative musician and as a violist, and that's I like to play a lot of different kinds of music. And when I was first starting out, as a solo artist, I was doing stuff that at the time was fairly radical, where it's like, yeah, I'm going to play Bach and Schubert on the first half, and the second half I'm going to bring out my Texas fiddle band. Mm -hmm. you know, Or I'd want to do a concert that was going to be you know, in a church audience or something, and I wanted to be able to do Baroque, I wanted to be able to do jazz, I wanted to do heavy metal. And I was having this kind of experience where everyone would like something, but there'd always be stuff they were uncomfortable about, mm -hmm. you know? And also I was doing a lot of work in schools and a lot of school concerts, community concerts. And it was very important to me that people under, not only understood what I was going to play, but that they loved what I was playing, Right. you know? And that's a tall order because a lot of times you're, your crowd that likes Bach is not going to appreciate Metallica. And, you know, the same, the same thing might be <laughs> true the other way around. I remember a guitar major when I was at Manus telling me that he had gone to an Yngwie Malmsteen concert and that when, when he'd start playing Bach, you know, everyone was like, oh, no, you know, just people would start <laughs> moaning because they, they wanted to hear Yngwie shred, but right. he, he also wants to play Bach, you know, and I don't, I don't want that sort of thing. I mean, I once was playing, it was a bad decision, but... I was playing Stravinsky's Elegy for solo viola. I was running through a recital in a retirement home in New York, and um, that's a dissonant piece. Lots of major sevens, yeah. lots of minor seconds, and and it's a piece about it's it's a, it's lamenting a dead musician, you know. And so it it goes there. It has that kind of um, sorrowfulness. Since I'm playing this piece. It was funny because I was also playing a Hindemith viola sonata, which had some raunchy dissonances and some loud stuff. And I thought, if anything's going to get to these people, it's going to be that. But they were fine with the Hindemith. But in the middle of the elegy, people started moaning. And, you know, this, this woman just finally goes, I can't stand it! And then she stood up and got her walker and walked away. That's and I still awesome. had three minutes to go. And so I actually started censoring the elegy and changing the intervals. And, and afterwards, I felt so bad. And I'm like, oh, God, that was, that was such a terrible thing to do these people. And at the same time, I got a problem because I love this piece. I think it has a profound truth. But I know that a lot of audiences just aren't going to like it. And, and so... Uh, what what started to happen was I, I was working a lot as a teaching artist where I was in the public schools. Or I was doing pre-concert workshops, helping people to hear sophisticated art music. And 
I, and I had a lot of good training in that from Juilliard and from Lincoln Center, but it was more in a workshop format. And so I was really thinking, how can I apply these same things to the concert stage, where I can do things like what Valerie Vigoda did last night, where she played this marvelous concert, where in, in one sense, she's presenting an autobiography of herself, right. and she's also teaching us a self-help method for how we can realize our full potential, but she's also playing a lot of songs. Right. And it's like each thing she did set us up to enter that song as if we were the people who wrote it and lived it. Yeah, I and, love that. And that, that's kind of what my book and, and everything was all about. It's, it's like, well, if I do want to play Metallica, if I do want to play Bach, if I do want to play Texas fiddle, and I do want to play jazz, and I want to do it all in the same concert, and I know that not everybody there necessarily is going to listen to all of that independently, although it's better now. I think YouTube and Spotify and these streaming and shuffle modes have changed everything. The young generation is less segmented. They're I mean, used to cultural whiplash from song to, to song. Yeah. You know, it's like, look, when we were in school, you were judged by what's the bumper sticker on your car or, yeah. or your locker Which radio or station folder. did you listen to? Which radio station? It yeah. was totally that. It's like, oh, okay, you're, you're KKBQ. You're one of those top 40 types, you know, right. or, oh, okay, you're, you listen to country music or you're a stoner or a hard rock or whatever, you know, and, and that's what you were judged by. But I find these days people are much more ecumenical and a lot more eclectic and it's like as long as it moves me or or it does something and, and I love that but you know even so it does still take some doing to get people to to learn and to listen and so that was basically a lot of friends and I and worked on developing approaches to interactive concerts and how you can draw people into your performances, how you can set them up to hear the works. And one of the great things, I mean, the book, McGraw-Hill sold out of it, and then they basically said, we're reverting the rights to you, and, um, you know, you can do whatever you want, find another publisher or whatever. So it was out of print for about five years, and then I approached Berkeley Press about it, you know, as soon as I was hired to be to be chair of the string department there I thought okay I think I actually I can approach the press and maybe they'll go for it it was funny because the editor sat around on it for about three years and then finally I called him out on Facebook because my friend of mine who was education director at the Colorado Symphony was um, she had loaned her copy to someone and it never returned. She's like, who has my copy? Or would some brilliant editor out there, you know, bring this book back into publication? I'm like, Jonathan Feist, uh, how about we, you know, and so he, he said, he sent me an email the next week. He said, I took a look at your book and it's actually pretty good. You know, it's like, well, that's what I was trying to tell you three yeah, years ago. That word actually always gets me too, right? Yeah, well, I mean, here's the thing. He's a brilliant editor and he's a good guy and he made it a much, 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 much better book because when I first wrote it, my target artist, my target artist, or my target reader was basically classical musicians who were trying to build their audience, to build their following, and to help people listen to the music that they play. Which is most of it is not going to reveal itself on a first listening. And also, I mean, there were some jazz examples, but it was basically the Juilliard Conservatory student or the people who had a chamber group or a jazz combo or the groups I would work with as a consultant when I'd work with regional young audience chapters or orchestras. 
And Jonathan said, well, you know, Berkeley Press is not really a classical-based press. You know, we're Berkeley, and we feel the audience is too narrow. We want you to open it up. We want you to include all kinds of examples, and which means I can do stuff like hold up David Lee Roth's audience interactions as an example. Like, here's a brilliant one. The very first Van Halen album, there's one song that's not a single. Do you know which one? I don't remember. Ice Cream Man. Oh, my goodness. That's the one song that was never released as a single. Wow, it's been all over the radio. It's Yeah, but here's the thing. It became a concert staple. And so, like, how he starts it off is he's up there, and he's got an acoustic guitar and sometimes a harmonica, and he's just jamming and spinning a story about hanging out with high school friends. And there he, had, he said, everybody has a friend named Kenny. You know, and his Kenny was kind of the local one who supplied pot and various other things, or the party would be at Kenny's, and Kenny had an ice cream truck. And so that was kind of the the intro to the song is he'll spend a different story about the early days of Van Halen and then it launches into the song and so basically that whole interaction you're, he's getting everybody sucked into high school nostalgia and remembering friends and things and it's also so acoustic and so bluesy that when Eddie comes in you've got this heavy thing, you've got this great contrast right. and so it, the song hits hard emotionally and it hits hard Viscerally. I mean, that's another thing that that really has been influential to me and that I try to think about in my compositions is um, dynamic range and timbre range and how can I get different sounds and scope. I, I forget exactly the title of it, but back when I was first amplifying and learning some stuff, I mean, I'd, I'd read a lot of different books and do a lot of listening and dig really deeply into different role models like okay let's go through a Joe Satriani phase and really see what he was all about let's really listen to a lot of B.B. King let's really dig into Hendrix but there was a book about the history of the electric guitar and about how the guitar developed and how all these different artists and groups added something new or how it uh, changed over time and with the musical styles and the different world influences and things. But there was a whole chapter on Led Zeppelin. And one of the things the author pointed out that made so much sense to me, and it also fits in with psychoacoustics and how we hear, but, but they said one of the reasons Led Zeppelin sounded so heavy was because they had this tremendous dynamic range of Jimmy Page going from acoustic to the heavily distorted electric, and Metallica does that too. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, the ear needs that because our ear gets fatigued after hearing a lot of high decibel stuff. And so if you have that contrast of sometimes utterly acoustic and then sometimes utterly pounding electric, it really does something, mm-hmm. you know? This is a tune called Flatbush Waltz by the Doc Wallace Trio. It's here to remind you that even with all this other stuff going on, Doc is a Texas contest-style fiddler at heart.
So that's something that I try to keep in mind when I'm writing a piece or when I'm working with others or putting together a good set list. You know, I think that's that's a whole other element of you know how do you how do you put together a show? You know, and, and I mean that was, but I was really grateful to Jonathan for opening the audience up because then it, you know I talk about okay performing in prisons. That's a whole other topic, a whole other thing. And the king of that was Johnny Cash. No. I mean, if you listen to the complete uncut concert, you know, the live at Folsom Prison and the live at Sam Quentin, that's the gold standard in performing for our prison audience, you know, and not, granted, we're not all Johnny Cash and we're not all singers and we're not all going to be able to go into a penitentiary with an insider's view and we'd be foolish to try to pretend that we do or that we can truly empathize, you know, and actually... There was a, a residency in Vermont. There was this uh, organization, the Community Engagement Lab, that was hiring composers to compose new works and to also build in an audience engagement component. So I was asked to come into that project. Kenji Bunch, who's a wonderful violist and composer out in Oregon, and we were in school together, was commissioned to write a new electric concerto for Tracy Silverman. Mm. And so we were able to put our heads together for Tracy's first prison concert ever, which was in a women's, uh, you know, it was a low security uh, facility. But he put together this beautiful show, and it was just him and his electric violin, you know, and he did everything from vocals to looping to Bach. And actually, Bach was what brought everyone to tears. And he had this beautiful message where he was saying, you know, I just didn't fit in anywhere in whatever box it was. And I finally decided, you know, I can't change Juilliard. I can't change the, you know, the rock world. All I can change is me. And, you know, just introduced how he took this solo Bach movement and developed his own approach to it. It's just beautiful, hmm. you know. But, I mean, it's, you have to have your audience in mind. You have to know who you're performing for because they're your reason that you exist. You know, if, if you're not serving them, you should be doing something else because there's a lot better ways to make money or a lot easier ways to get famous, you know, really. But, um, and I think that's something, that's one of the beautiful things I'm seeing about the messages I'm seeing all the faculty teaching here is... Um, there's a real sense of you're giving something. You're giving what you specifically have to offer as a musician. And people are there to receive it. They're not there to judge you. They're not there to make fun of you. But they're there to accept what you have to give. And if you realize that, it suddenly turns the tables a lot. You're less nervous because it's... I mean, that's a something... Livingston Taylor has a great book called Stage Performance that came out, I think, in 1997 or something, and he's, he's on Berkeley faculty, and I remember when I bought that, that totally changed my concept of who I am as a performer and what I'm doing, but he basically kind of downplays your concert. He says, you know, you got to realize you are part of an, an evening that's bigger than you. You know, your concert's just part of things, but you're part of people's lives, and your your music becomes part of the soundtrack to people's lives. You know, and his music's pretty mellow, singer, guitar, songwriter. You know, he's James Taylor's brother, so it's the same kind of vein. 
And he said, there was this one concert, and I said, I don't know who it was or why, but you know, here was this really tough-looking biker guy who came to one of my shows, never said a word, but came and saw the show and then left. And he, he realized, you know, he must have heard one of my songs, and it must have gotten to him, and it meant something to him. You know, and so he needed that and came. But, but that's what's kind of remarkable is there's, there are so many things that are bigger than we are. And if we think it's all about us or all about our music or all about how perfect we are, we're missing the point. Music is a transaction and it, between an audience and a performer and you're giving them something. You're giving them something they need, whether it's a thrill ride, whether it's an emotional catharsis, whether it's something just to entertain them and take their mind off of everything else, or whether you're helping them to dance, uh, all those things. And so if you can start to realize, well, what is it that I'm trying to do? What is it I'm trying to communicate? And what is it about the music that I'm presenting that's, that's going to be great? Doc mentioned that he spent a lot of time playing in churches. This is What a Friend, Electric Improvisations on an American Hymn. Uh, this is another quote from Doc. Quote, It was recorded sometime after 4 a.m. on May 31st, 2004, following a night of intense free jazz in New York City's Vision Festival. Basically, after getting my head full of all kinds of wild dissonance, I wasn't playing that night, just listening, I got home and felt like, man, I have to record something. My home Pro Tools rig with a Carillon custom-built computer was brand new, so I got it running, sketched out the form, recorded a couple of takes, and wound up going with the best one. The only effect I'm using is a ping-pong delay from my Zoom GFX8, which was the original multi-effects that I used." End quote. gets me thinking we could sit here for days yeah, days <laughs> talking about this I don't know how long you guys are going to listen out there yeah. but this is uh, just certainly been a fascinating conversation I feel like there's many many more of these conversations to follow um, where can people find you and, and your stuff on the internet my website is docwallacemusic.com d-o-c-w-a-l-l-a-c-e m-u-s-i-c dot com I'm also on, on YouTube, that's pretty easy as well, you know, youtube.com forward slash Doc Wallace Music. I've, I've got a lot of my electric performance and as well as electroacoustic performances up there, and there will be more to come. 
Um, and I'm also, you know, my Berkeley contact information is there. It's possible to contact me through my website, but I, I should be better. But I'm often notoriously slow of logging into WordPress and checking those messages. I'm trying to be better at that. But um, Berkeley email, I definitely check pretty quickly, and that's that's on the that's on the Berkeley website. That's D W A L L A C E one at b e r k l e e dot e d u. Don't forget the one, or it goes in a vortex. <laughs> but. Um, I'm really grateful to be a musician, Matt. I mean, it's, um, I feel like we're lucky. You know, we play for a living, right. as Bobby McFerrin says. And you had a post the other week on social media where you, you were outlining all, you know, what your week looked like or, you know, yeah. that particular week where it's like, okay, what, what, say it, what, it's like at different hours and different days, what, what, you know. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. It's like, it, I think I've been on stage at two in the morning and yeah. like five in the morning the next day I'm driving and I'm up in another state yeah. and I'm playing with kids and then it's, yeah, back to work. And, and how you were, you were saying like, you know, People who aren't musicians probably think you're out of your mind, you know, but right. in musicians, you know, that's, we do that because it's, it's a joy, it's a privilege, you know, I wouldn't trade that. I mean, it, that's the other thing that's so wonderful is music takes you different places and introduces to you different collaborators, different people to work with. You, you just know? meet so many fascinating people with so many amazing stories. Yeah. And at this camp, I don't, I don't, I'm going to just go ahead and give a quick commercial for the Mark Woodcock Orchestra <laughs> Camp. You got to get here. You know, this, this the most amazing collection of, of talent from what, what's the youngest, 12 or 13 years old? Roughly. To, I mean, I don't know how old some of the, some of the older attendees I'd say are. Maybe 70s. septuagenarian or at least, you know, 60s or 70s probably. And the faculty, everything from Val, who's doing yeah. like this theatrical stuff. To you, who's a lot of this real—I don't even know how to describe it. It's <laughs> cerebral and, and out there and creative, and and Chuck is just this table smashing heavy metal guy, yeah. and Hayden is bringing all the the Latin influences in, and Greg's this incredible jazz uh, cello player. It's just—it's it, really incredible how diverse and and widely varied the faculty is here. And that's the other thing that's amazing is how people do so many different things and how we love each other and we respect each other and we play with everybody's sets. And, you know, being a student here is, you know, I, I kind of envy that them to have that opportunity where everybody's getting to play in a small ensemble with, with one of the faculty coaches and collaborate with others and... Um, and play in an orchestra that's directed by Mark or, or Greg, and um, just to take that all in, it's it's amazing. And that's that's part of the thing that I love to do here is uh, today we had the student concerts, and so I had two opposite groups. One was I had a trio, a very young trio that I coached with Val Vigoda that were covering the Go-Go's We Got the Beat, so you had kind of new wave or punk. And then my other group, we did Pink Floyd set the controls for the heart of the sun. That was incredible. <laughs> that was a bucket list piece for me. I, I've been wanting to do that one here for about three years, either on a faculty concert or with one of my combos. And, um, you know, it's, it just didn't work out one way or the other. 
just because, I mean, if to do it on a faculty concert, if technically you're only allotted 20 minutes, that's almost your piece right there. Right. If you're going to do an extended jam, I mean, Smashing Pumpkins did like a 30-minute version of that once. But the other thing is you need the right people in your combo. Like one year, it's like, I'm going to do it. No, I'm not going to do it. I need better players than that. I, it's not a piece for people who might be tentative or fearful. You need fearless right. people who are okay with chaos and uncertainty, you yep. know. Um, and then, the, you know, another year they, they gave me an all-acoustic group. It's like, okay, you can't really do early Pink Floyd with <laughs> with all-acoustic, at least not that song. You could maybe do Sam Trope or some other song and it would work. But it's like, okay, let's switch over and do a fish song. And... But then this year, well, they actually, Lisa Batson, who's the director of the camp, asked me, would you do the all-acoustic group this year? And I had already said, you know, I really want to do set the controls this year. I said, well, I don't mind a few acoustics, but I can't do all acoustic because I'm not going to be able, I'd have to switch songs. Right. You know, she said, okay, well, I don't want you to switch songs. And so she gave me an all-electric group, and Hayden was happy to do the all acoustic, which is perfect. Yeah, I love you, Lewis. It, perfect, man. You know, I mean, when you, we've got Latin music and acoustic fiddles, it was just great. You know, and Hayden's such an amazing guy and is so flexible yep. and such a good teacher. You know, he's he's just a, an amazing guy to have around. But but yeah, so this year I had, had like, it was 14 of us, you know, and we were able to pull that off. And um, yeah, so he, he's got these players who a lot of them have probably never even really listen to Pink Floyd yeah and he's got them just pulling off a legit psychedelic experience and it was uh, I heard one of your students actually say when she came back that she really didn't she didn't get it during the one of the rehearsals and you recorded it on your phone yeah and played it back and when she heard it back she went oh yeah now I get it yeah now I hear it and she had said that it's a. She's, it's funny because everybody said when they listened back, they said it was a very different experience listening, because you can hear the whole thing, right? And the whole swirl. And I can sort of hear it, but it is different when you're in the thick of everything than being away. It's like when you're in an orchestra, you're close to your section, and you may not be paying attention to whatever else is going on. But um, yeah, and it was it was really cool. Like we had this. Uh, I mean, something that happened was the the bass player and the guitarist, uh, Zach Malka and Kai, I'm forgetting Kai's last name, but they were both return campers. And what kind of is funny, because Kai was in my Beatles combo last year, and he was probably a little more advanced in that group. And I remember this one moment where he and, and the bass player just looked at each other and they just started jamming on uh, Megadeth's Symphony of Destruction. Oh, that's awesome. You know, and it's like... Um, and a similar thing happened in rehearsal the other day where he and Zach, the bass player, started playing lateralis. And I said, hey, if you feel Tool during the jam, bring that in because it's so related to Roger Waters' melodic line that it'll just work. So we had that section of the jam where it went into seven, you know, and here we are and we've got this suddenly we're in seven but I love I love free improvisation and I love psychedelic jams because when you free people of the rules 
everything's wide open. You know, I, mean, I know you do a lot of free improv workshops and things with people, but it's, it's so helpful for people who are classically trained in some ways. It's also extremely scary. Mm. But the good news is you've got your whole vocabulary. You can do all your notes, all your scales, all your shifts, any timbres you can do. And so it's like you're able to access your own artistry, whereas if suddenly you're looking at a Chick Corea chart like we were playing last night. Oh my goodness, that, that thing was amazing. Oh, guys, that was Greg. Greg Byers did a really killer arrangement, and that was such a great quartet, you know, with Chuck Von Traeger and Joe Dennis. I'm particularly. I mean, this is, that's the other cool thing. I mean, this is a place where everybody's going out on a limb and doing something that scares them in, mm -hmm. in taking a, a challenge. And, um, you know, Chuck initially, I mean, Greg said, anybody who wants a solo can take a solo. And I wrote back, I said, I would love a solo. I said, you know, I've actually never played Spain or performed it, but I said, it's kind of one of those Berkeley Rite of Passage tunes. And if a video surfaced of a quartet playing Spain and I'm not taking a solo, you're never gonna I'm never going to live that down. That's setting a terrible example as a string chair, you know, even if I just do a bad solo. But, you know, Chuck basically is like, you know, I don't play jazz. I don't really do this. I said, Chuck, you know, this was in rehearsal. And Joe is great. You know, Joe. Oh and, and I mean, Joe's scary, too. I mean, the solo he sent up last night was otherworldly. Oh, my God. Joe's from another planet. Exactly. I mean, that was just one of the best Spain solos I've ever heard and just incredibly brilliant. And some of it he worked out a little bit, you know, where he's like seeing what, how can I arpeggiate these mm -hmm. chords. But it was totally improvised, very different from it was in rehearsal. And it is true when you've got that sort of thing it's very hard to throw down because it's like, okay, here, I, to my left, I've got a cellist who's about to go to Poland and do the biggest international violin, jazz violin competition on cello. He's going to be chewing up and spitting out violinists. Exactly. Easily, you know, and then, and then here's Joe, who's one of my heroes and idols. And so it's like, what am I, how am I going to fit in? But it's, it's like, it's one of those things where when you're, I mean, I tell the kids this all the time, I can't be a better hard rock violinist than Mark Wood. I haven't put in that much time and I don't have the same stuff in my blood as he does. You know, I can't out jazz Joe. I can't out theater Val, you know? And so it's like, you gotta realize who are you and what do you have to contribute? And so it's like, I already knew, well, I, I can make the changes for sure. And Joe said, you do the six, eight solo because that's the lower key one. And it would be beautiful to have a viola solo there. And so Chuck was gonna pass on the solo. And Joe's like, Chuck, just take one, just take one. I said, Chuck, let's do it together. You know, let's, let's do, I'll start, then you take over, and, and I'll back you, you back me, and we'll just find it. And it was, it was great. Mm -hmm. And no one, I mean, most of the people did not realize we were improvising a solo. And I told Chuck, I said, that's the sign that we actually did something good, is that people didn't even know what we were doing was not composed, or something that Greg arranged. But it's like, the thing that I appreciate is this is a place, as Laura Kay, you know, Mark Wood's wife, and lead singer always says, she says, this is a judgment-free zone. It's a place to, to realize your potential. And, you know, when you're on that stage, you're getting an ocean of love coming at you from the audience and a lot of sincere appreciation. And it inspires you to do your best. It inspires you to take risks. I mean, I was telling people, you know, for me, the, the scary moment to do something that scares you and that 
that goes back to a, a story that Kenny Bosco, who's one of the great luthiers and a longtime person at the camp who we lost this spring, but he said, do something that scares you. You know, and I said, for me, it was, you know, we had a Van Halen set where I opened with Cathedral. That's something I've been wanting to learn for a long time because everybody does eruption. It's, right. it's the shiny, amazing thing, and it's got that Kreutzer Tulik in it. And I don't think anyone had ever done Cathedral, but I'm like, I want to do that because it's beautiful and it sits perfectly on a six string. Mm. Perfectly. You don't have to transpose anything, it just lies. And so, you know, we wanted to do what Eddie did a lot in concert, where he would do Cathedral and segue into Eruption, which Chuck does really, really well. He destroyed that. It's, it's, I, in some ways, I like what he does better than Eddie, and he'll go into stuff that he can do on violin. And then the natural segue, what does Eruption go into? It goes into You Really Got Me. And I, I was thinking, I was, well, this, it's funny, Chuck and I push each other in a positive way, like just like I was saying, hey, do a jazz solo. I don't care if you're not a jazz musician. You know, it's like, I was thinking, you know, we ought to get Joe out to sing it because Joe, you know, Joe's got a great rock and roll. He's like, no, you're singing it. It's like, you mean I got to be Roth? Yeah, I think you should do the solos in the middle of the end. And it's like, yeah. are you kidding me? So I got to be Roth and Eddie and, oh, Lord, you know. But it's that was kind of my risk-taking moment, and it worked out. You know, I'd, if I had it to do again, I might do a few things differently, and I couldn't hear my notes at all in the solo just because of the monitor situation. Yeah. But, you know, but it was fun. But name another string camp where that happens. I, really? You know, and, and in that set, I mean, when we went from Van Halen to Izai, you know, Chuck doing Izai on six string, and then, um, you know, three of my compositions, and then we went to Dire Straits Brothers in Arms and Metallica One with Val blowing oh, that the was doors through the roof yeah. with her vocals. That may be my favorite vocal on that song ever. And having no guitars at all, but you know, two, three at some point. It was so heavy. It was so heavy, and that was the thing. I mean, Chuck loves Metallica, and he he did most of the arranging. Val and I did a little bit of tweaking here and there, but he said there's always a part in that song where you know they go into the really heavy riffs and then you know uh, Kirk Hammett goes into his solo and he says it's always disappointing live because the bottom falls out because one of the guitars is you know you lose half of your drive there and he said it's not going to happen here because we'll have an extra violinist throwing down and while I do the solo and you know and then to finish with uh, an orchestra and the full Markwood Experience Band and Laura Kay singing Home Sweet Home. I mean, that's the kind of crazy concert that I dream of, you know. That's, uh, that's what I just really love to do is just, I mean, that's the thing was fundamentally in our collaborations, we're, we just figure out what's the music that we really love to play, that we really want to play, that we're not going to get to do anywhere else. Right. You know, or when you when you know you get to do at least one or maybe two songs with the Markwood Experience band musicians, like, oh, what do I want to hear? What yeah. do I want to do? How can I push those guys? Yeah, how good can luck I, pushing those guys. Oh man, yeah, this I, band's I, incredible. I, I yeah, it's I think probably on our night, obviously the one that pushed them the most was um, Metallica's one because 
Jason had to do all this double kick work, you know, and it, it wouldn't. It was an electronic kit. It wasn't his choice of, of what he would normally want to do. But you know, you can't fly everything out to Olathe, Kansas. Right. So, you, you work with what you got. But that's that's what's so amazing and so fun is to have those opportunities. We still rolling? Yeah, we're still rolling. I was just checking time. Want to make sure. Wow, we're, we're at about an hour and a half. That's yeah. Well, I'm going to wrap it up. We uh, we got good to me. plenty of stuff here, and we'll mix in a bunch of your music and and uh, just have some fun. Yeah, it's been a privilege, man. Yeah, well, really thank you so much. With you. Yeah, likewise. Look forward to more in the future. And now, a suite of wonderful compositions from everyone's favorite Dutch-American composer, Edward Van Halen. so much for listening to another episode of Rockstar Violinist. I'm about to pack up and head to NAM in Anaheim, California, and I've got some sweet interviews lined up for you guys while I'm out there. I cannot wait for you to hear them. In the meantime, there are 44, yes, 44 other episodes of Rockstar Violinist to enjoy. If you wouldn't mind liking and commenting on those on whatever platform you're listening on, I would so much appreciate it. And until next time, crank up that fiddle, play loud, play proud.